So if you have your Bibles with you this morning or have them on uh, a device that you have uh, with you, that's uh, the sound is turned off on, right? Um, uh, look up uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start today on a series of talks on uh, Jesus, what we often refer to as his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so we'll, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew uh, 5 through 7 in the, uh, the, the next few weeks. And so I would invite you to um, open up your Bibles or your devices to uh, Matthew 5, uh, particularly uh, this morning. So as you... Um, Look at the title of my uh, message here this morning, the, the, the kind of life that, uh, that uh, God, God blesses. Let's, let's have a moment of truth. Uh, how many of you kind of had this image in mind? Uh, my sister-in-law sent me this uh, picture she, in, in a little text saying that she was just down at the marina in, uh, in the town in which she lives, uh, kicking back, having a cup of coffee, and uh, just saw this, and it just kind of impressed. I don't even know that she noticed the, uh, the name of, the, of uh, this yacht uh, uh, painted on the side, but um, when I thought of where I was going with you today, I just couldn't resist this. Let's pray. Father, as we think of the kind of life that you bless, we all have kinds of images, I'm sure, that that come to mind. But as Jesus unpacked your truth for us in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, there's a lot of images that we might resist. And so I pray that you will help us today to understand that in your economy, there is, as we've been singing earlier, a, a humility attached to it. The humble King Jesus has come to show us the way. And so I pray that you will help us today to realize what it is that Jesus sets for us as his followers and that we will gain a fresh understanding, perhaps, or a renewed understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and embrace that truth with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. We pray in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Matthew has devoted more space to the words of Jesus in his gospel than any of the other gospel writers. He has preserved for us at least five of Jesus' major talks. And the first and probably best known of any of them was the passage that we want to look at in the next few weeks together, captured in chapters 5 through 7 of uh, Matthew's Gospel, and has been tagged, as I've already mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount, since Jesus spoke it from what we've thought of as, as, as a mountainside, but actually having been there where this, we think this message was given, it's actually more of a, of a hillside. But in this talk, Jesus gives a concise statement on the essentials for becoming the kind of person who lives with God's kingdom values in mind. And at the conclusion of, this, of his talk, he stated that all who would live by what he taught would have the benefit of understanding what is necessary to actually do what is right. Now the audience to which Jesus spoke is worth noting, I think, 
When Jesus launched his earthly ministry with a preaching, teaching, healing tour of Galilee, it soon became the case that when Jesus spoke, people gathered around to listen. His fame and reputation spread like wildfire. The news about him reached throughout the region, extended into Syria, traveled south to Jerusalem and across the Jordan River into Jordan, and all of this without the benefit of YouTube. Go figure. But the buzz in those days was all about what Jesus was saying and doing. And so it was on the day that Jesus gave his talk on the hillside, the roads were, the roads were jammed with the curious and the celebrity watchers and the autograph seekers. The paparazzi was all staked out, cameras slung over their shoulders, zoom lenses firmly in place, ready for the perfect shot, because the buzz of the people was enormous as Jesus approached town with a group of his closest followers walking alongside of him. But then a strange thing happened. Matthew records that when Jesus saw the crowds, he took a detour off the road and began to walk up this hillside. Finding a suitable spot, he sat down. Those accompanying him, identified by Matthew as his disciples, came to him and sat down as well. And Jesus began to teach them. The primary audience for the Sermon on the Mount was not the crowds, but was Jesus' closest followers, his disciples. So this leads to several questions. Who are the crowds? Who are the disciples? Why did Jesus focus his talk towards those who were already following him? Now, the crowds could be identified as the large group of people who chased after Jesus from place to place. It consisted of the curious and the seeking, those who were interested in Jesus and were amazed at his teaching, but made little or no commitment to him. Then there were also those in the crowd who would be tagged as those who were there to criticize Jesus. The disciples were those who had devoted themselves to following after Jesus as their leader and deliverer and were apprenticing for living out his teaching and his mission. As he taught, Jesus focused on his disciples, but he also had an eye on the crowd, extending to them an invitation to follow after him. By the end of the sermon, Matthew records that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one with authority, not like the other teachers of the law. And so it was Jesus' objective to make disciples from the crowd. Indeed, it is the sign of faith in God when a person steps away from the crowd and acknowledges Jesus as the one who forgives their sin and transforms their lives. It can be said that at this point, a person becomes a believer or an apprenticing disciple. Jesus intends for his disciples to catch his passion for the crowd. He directs his teaching to them for the purpose of instructing them in the way they are to live in order that they may influence the crowd towards embracing his life-transforming message. Every devoted follower of Jesus is to be involved in leading people out of the crowd to Him. He is the only one who can make a difference when it comes to experiencing life as God intends it to be. 
Now, there is no doubt that the Sermon on the Mount is a call for the followers of Jesus to live differently. And many commentators pick up on this theme as the primary focus of Jesus' teaching. One author that I was reading made this statement. If I were asked to give an overall theme to this grand sermon, it would be, be different. Now, I can agree to him with him to some extent. However, I am concerned that many followers of Christ have taken this call to be different as a reason to disengage from the crowd. Because they see themselves as living differently from unbelievers, they avoid contact with them and gather in safe little church groups. And by doing so, they lose sight of the fact that Jesus calls his followers to join him in his mission to reach the crowds with the message of hope and love and joy and peace and forgiveness and transformation. I think that what Jesus is really saying to those who commit to following him is not to be different, but to be difference makers. Jesus is teaching his disciples with the intention of having them engage the crowd to show them how life from God's perspective is meant to be lived. He envisioned them becoming culture creators in a world that rejects the values of God's kingdom. Now Jesus begins his talk on the hillside with a description of the kind of life that God blesses. The opening section of Jesus' talk is often referred to as the Beatitudes. You may have heard it described in this way. Beatitude is derived from the Latin translation of the Bible known as the Vulgate, in which each statement of this section, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, begin with the Latin word Beati. Essentially, the Beatitudes define the state of those who exist in right relationship with God and therefore experience the benefits of His provision. They are blessed. Now, some modern translations have used the word happy or fortunate to describe the condition of those who live according to Jesus' teaching. However, these words can diminish, I think, the impact of what Jesus is saying. They may be taken to suggest that if we are not feeling happy or are living in less fortunate circumstances, then for some reason God has withdrawn his favor. Even though it may be tempting to come up with some more relevant word, the English word bless still seems to best describe Jesus' intentions. Those who live life from the perspective that Jesus describes will know the reality of receiving God's blessing. Now, having said that, it is important to understand that the Beatitudes are not a teaching on how to be blessed. As Dallas Willard writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, the Beatitudes simply cannot be good news if they are understood as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would then only amount to a new legalism as well as some very gratifying new possibilities for the human engineering of righteousness. It is more accurate to view them as illustrations, as explanations of what life for a devoted follower of Jesus really looks like. How this culture that Jesus intends for his followers to create in the world will be expressed. They teach us that in Christ, life change is possible in circumstances that are beyond 
all human hope. And this is important to understand. Because it is strikingly apparent from what Jesus says that God's blessing rests on us in the most unexpected ways. The kind of life that God blesses calls for a different way of thinking that leads to a change in attitude. It calls for extensive love that produces a change in affection. And it calls for bold character that prompts a change in action. So Jesus, first of all, directs attention to the need to think differently with a changed attitude. The point Jesus is making in his teaching is that God's blessing rests on the most unlikely people, those who realize their need for him, those who mourn, those who are gentle and lowly. If we don't understand this truth, we will miss out on all that God intends us to be. So living life from God's perspective calls for clear thinking with an understanding that God blesses those who realize their need for him. As the scriptures say, God blesses those who realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. Now, those who acknowledge their need of God admit to their inability to gain God's favor by what they do. They are hopelessly disconnected from God and separated from any possibility of being rightly related to Him. They are spiritually bankrupt or deprived. Poor in spirit is a description that may be more familiar to many of you. They see themselves fitting the biblical description that says no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Now the blessing from this kind of humble acknowledgement is entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is gained only by those who realize that they have no resources, material or spiritual, to promote themselves before God. They call out to Him in desperation for His grace and His mercy and acknowledge Him as their help and their deliverer. The blessing received is the promise of God's provision and the assurance of heaven gained. Now, those who are next in Jesus' declaration of the kind of people God blesses are those who embrace mourning. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, Luke, in his record of Jesus' teaching on this matter, refers to those who mourn as the weeping ones. They are characterized by the sorrow of a distressed mind, the ache of a wounded soul, the press of a broken spirit. There are any number of circumstances that can lead to gut-wrenching sorrow in our life experience. The death of a child, the betrayal of a spouse, giving into sexual temptation, the loss of employment or financial security, the acts of senseless cruelty that happen in our world, so many things to send our minds spinning in a hundred and one directions with many unanswered questions. However, as we come to understand the way of Jesus, as we enter into it and learn to live in the reality of his presence with us in those most desperate times, we will discover that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning.
Next, God blesses those who respond with gentleness and meekness. God blesses those who are gentle and lowly, for the whole earth will belong to them. In a world where the aggressive, the domineering, the harsh, and the competitive are seen to have what it takes to get ahead in life, any thought of being gentle and lowly just seems ridiculous. I mean, that is the sure way to get stepped on, beaten down, skipped over, and taken advantage of. And, and I mean, who really wants that? And so if you are intent in building your own little kingdom, then gentleness and meekness will not likely be on your list of values. However, when the kingdom of God enfolds you, that's the moment you find yourself the proud owner of everything that cannot be bought. Life in God's kingdom means a complete change of attitude. The blessed ones are those who know that they don't have life altogether, are those who realize that to make a choice in life means that they must come under the rule of God and experience God's provision in their life. This change in attitude is then followed with a change of affection and calls for extensive love. I think I may have told you this story, but I'm going to repeat it. When I experience a cold, it usually starts in my, my chest and then makes its way up to my head. My grandfather used to tell me that this is because my cold follows the lines of least resistance. <laughs> implying, of course, that my mental capacity did not offer much of a challenge to anything. <laughs> Love my grandfather. Uh, in, matters of, uh, in matters of faith, however... I must say that I found that, that it's usually the opposite direction that presents a problem for me. Once, often I give mental assent to truth, but it does not capture my heart and move to the very core of my being. Jesus goes right to the heart with the next three Beatitudes that describe the kind of life that God blesses. Those who have a passion for justice and righteousness will be blessed by God. God blesses those who are hungry and thirsty for justice, for they will receive it in full. Now, hunger and thirst, of course, are our primary triggers in, in our bodies to ensure that we stay healthy and, and, and strong. We ignore our body's call for food and drink at the risk of our physical well-being. The world in which we live is desperately sick. It drinks from the cup of revenge, which can never satisfy the thirst of the human spirit. A short time after the planes uh, flew into the twin towers of the World Trade Center, I happened to walk by a store that had a poster in the front window with the heading, In a Perfect World. The poster pictured the twin towers of the World Trade Center bending out as a plane flew between them. In a perfect world, the plane would not have even been flying at the buildings. The world is far from perfect, but those who hunger and thirst for justice can make a difference. As they crave for God to execute his justice in the world and make a personal commitment to living morally upright lives themselves, God restores their souls and fills them with the goodness of right-wise living. 
They then become God's instrument for spreading for the spread of hope and salvation. They take up the Micah challenge given by the Old Testament prophet when he wrote, And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus echoes this challenge when he gives the next statement on the kind of life that God blesses. Those who practice mercy. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, those who live outside the kingdom of values of of God's kingdom that Jesus is presenting say that the merciful are losers. In the real world, to be merciful leads to being taken advantage of. And this can certainly be true. When one of our sons was attending university, he was walking back to his apartment one day uh, after class, planning to stop at a, a, a Starbucks on, along the street for a drink. As he approached the coffee shop, he passed a homeless woman sitting on the sidewalk. Moved by her plight, he reached into his pocket, took out the five bucks he was going to spend at Starbucks, and dropped it into the receptacle she had set out in front of her. His steps felt much lighter on the remainder of the way to his apartment. Later on the 6 o'clock news, a local news team exposed this woman as being a fraud by following her from her place on the sidewalk to her car parked a few blocks away and then out to her home in the suburbs. Our son called me, Dad, did you see that? I gave that lady five bucks. He felt ripped off, concluding that the woman didn't deserve his act of mercy. And that's the deal with mercy. It is not given to those who deserve it, but to those who do not. That is how God deals with us. And when we respond in this way to others, God takes notice and will see to it that mercy is returned to us from the great abundance of His goodness. Then the blessing of God rests on the pure of heart. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Pure-hearted people display a loyalty to God that affects every area of their lives. This does not mean that they never sin or experience impure thoughts and practice, but they know God's power to purify, and so they offer this constant prayer, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. The undivided loyalty of the pure in heart is that they will be rewarded by their greatest hope. They will see God. Now this has both a future element and a present promise. Sure, they will eventually see God in the splendor of heaven. But for now, they become sight sensitive to God being actively at work in their life's situations. And when we see God actively at work in our lives, it can't help but shape the way we we respond to others. It shows in bold character that prompts a change in our actions. This leads first to the action of peacemaking. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Now, to work for peace is a common biblical theme and especially shows the characteristic of being a member of God's family. 
The Hebrew word for, for peace is the word shalom and speaks to the webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight. John Ortberg describes it in this way. Try to imagine what such a state of affairs would look like. In a world where shalom prevailed, wars would cease. Politicians would actually work together for the common good of the people. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. They would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, which, of course, would have no fat or cholesterol. Doors would have no locks and cars would have no alarms. Schools would be free from the threat of violence and students, teachers and custodians would all value and honor one another's work. At recess, every kid would be picked for a team. Churches would never split. And at the center of this shalom society would be its chief architect and most glorious resident, the God who fills everyone with unceasing kindness and everlasting joy. It is this vision that led Jesus to teach on the blessing peacemakers bring to chaos and how his followers are to shape a culture that reflects the presence and power of God. By making peace your operative response to people, you will show yourself to truly be a part of God's kingdom makeup. Blessing has been described as the tangible touch of God. Jesus is making the point that God's touch becomes most tangible through his followers. Well, Jesus concluded his teaching on the kind of life that God blesses by stating that those who embrace his kingdom values can expect to be persecuted and insulted. God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward, a reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, the extent of the persecution that I have faced as a follower of, of Jesus has, has been pretty well limited to perhaps a few insults and being made the brunt of someone's jokes or being left off of a party list. This is mostly because I have lived in places where Christianity is at least tolerated, if not embraced. However, many believers are subjected to physical harm, abuse, imprisonment, and even uh, the threat of death for their faith in Jesus. In fact, just this past week, BBC News posted a, a news link that was entitled, Christians Persecuted at the Race of Genocidal uh, uh, Measures in Most of, of the World. Interesting read uh, if you Google BBC News and you, you can maybe find that. See, the reality is, is that those who are intent as walk, in walking as Jesus would have them walk, will often face momentary harassment, but there's also those whose lives are ruined or killed simply for refusing to be compliant with what goes against God's ways. Unless there is the recognition that we are about a different kingdom, God's kingdom, and learn to live as citizens under his rule, we cannot be dismayed by the way that we are treated. 
In God's realm, those who refuse to cave into the pressure of compromise to escape personal harm gain great benefit. God looks with favor upon them and places them in the security of his kingdom where they rule as royal occupants of his domain. The essential teaching then of Jesus in the Beatitudes is that those who may be looked upon as human lasts, when captured by the attitude, the affections, and activities of God's kingdom, become divine firsts. He shows us that the hopeless blessables of this world live full lives because they are looked upon favorably by God. It is to them that the divine call to create a culture of transformational presence is given. They are the ones who will carry God's design into the chaos of a world turned upside down by human rule. They speak up for justice, beat back the spread of poverty, and champion the rights of the disadvantaged. They hear the call of God to step out from the crowd and make a redemptive difference where they can. This is the reality that Jesus sets before you if you want to experience the kind of life that God blesses. So how do we take this to the crowd? Here are a couple of questions for you to consider. How has your understanding of the blessing of God been shaped by today's lesson? Where can you be a blessing to others and become for them a touch point between heaven and earth? If you are not sure, pray for God to help you in your understanding. If you're part of a life group, you're going to be dialoguing a little bit more about these questions this week. But I hope that you will give serious thought to what it is that Jesus is saying to us through this talk that we are looking at today and in the weeks to come. Stand with me. We'll pray. Wrap up our time together. Father, we are mindful today as we have looked at this passage of Scripture how different your idea for how we are to live out our lives is from how we think about it. And as a result, we often, our intention in our minds and our hearts are in, uh, in clash with you and the values that you have. So I pray today that you will help us to understand who you are and what it is that you have in mind for us as your children. And I pray that you will help us not just to sing about the humble king and not just to kind of look at these passages of Scripture and say, oh, well, that's kind of nice. I pray that you will help us to wrestle with these realities because it is in your intention that we become your blessing to people, that we become your tangible touch to those who are around us. And if that's going to happen, we're going to need to have a change in attitude and a change in our affections and a change in how we behave. And so I pray that you will help us bring understanding in a new and fresh way because it is our calling 
to carry your kingdom values, your mission, Lord Jesus, of transformation into our homes, into our workplaces, into our college classrooms, into the boardroom, into the locker room, into our communities, wherever we are, it is your intention that we be culture creators after the values that you want to have exercised in this world. And if we could only get that, what a change would occur. And now, may this all-wise, all-knowing God give to you an understanding of his care for you, of the empowering of his spirit, of the constant companionship of the Lord Jesus, who said, Behold, I am with you always. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Live in the reality of that authority this week. We pray. Amen.